Over 30 years of advice for your house, home, castle, or cabin. Y'all have things you want to get done. It's Rosie on the House. It's hour number three of Rosie on the House, our 10 o'clock hour. We call it our open home hour, open to you, the Arizona homeowner. Whatever you want to talk about your home, castle, or cabin, generally a completely open line uh, format this hour. We've changed it a little bit because we've got a great message that Water Use It Wisely has helped put uh, together for us this week. We've got a lot of guests, and we're going to get right to them, all relating to our water supply. We've got SRP and CAP representatives. If you're new to the state and you're like, what do those mean? Well, this segment, you should have a very good understanding of where our water comes from and how it's managed and what we need to be aware of going into the future. Let's start with in-state Salt River Project, SRP. We've got Bo Savoma. Thank you for spending your Saturday morning with us. Hi, you're welcome. Happy to be here. So talk about the watershed system. Uh, SRP manages 13,000 square miles of watershed to, to the east of the valley, extending almost to New Mexico, and then extending to the north of the valley, um, past Flagstaff over to Ash Fork, basically. And uh, the uh, main rivers in the watershed are the Verde River, draining into Horseshoe Reservoir, and the Salt River and Tonto Creek, draining into Roosevelt Lake and the Lower Salt Reservoirs. Along those reservoirs, most of them have hydropower capability? Yeah, salt, uh, below Roosevelt Lake, Apache uh, Lake, Canyon Lake, and Saguaro Lake have hydropower capabilities. And you guys are one of the unique ones in utility because you both provide power and electric where, as far as I've seen, no other utility company. It's either gas, water, or power. No one except y'all does both. Yeah, it's unique. The the sides of the company are separate in some ways, but then they overlap with the, with the hydropower aspect. So, it's, so it is pretty exciting. And when all these reservoirs are full, what is our storage capacity that you can manage? It's about 2.3 million acre feet. And how many acre feet will the state use in a year? Uh, off the top of my head, I can't answer that question, the usage of acre feet in a year. But what I can say is that about half of the valley's water supply on average comes from uh, SRP's system. And you do that without draining your reservoirs. So we're not using that full Correct. water allotment. Yeah, so we've year. been in a drought uh, since 1996. And there's papers that say that's the most severe drought in the last uh, six to 700 years. Our storage right now is about the exact same as it was at the beginning of that drought, and it's due to a number of reasons. One really important one is that a single wet winter can refill our reservoir system. Um, another important reason is that uh, deliveries have actually been going down largely because people are becoming more conservative with their water use, and, uh, and that, th that has helped as well. And when you're talking water deliveries, how does that work? Yeah, so the Verde River and the Salt River converge just northeast of the valley. And just below that confluence, there's Granite Reef Diversion Dam. And from there, the water is diverted into two main canals, the South Canal and Arizona Canal. And, uh, and then those canals uh, go to the 250,000 uh, acre service territory and uh, divides off into laterals. And it's all gravity fed. And all those laterals are owned by different water districts and municipalities that then turn around, treat it, deliver it to our homes, our parks, our schools, our offices? Yeah. So the, the, we deliver it to the city's water treatment plants uh, in large part, and they treat the water and deliver it. Correct. And any idea how long it, once a drop of water hits Reservoir Lake, how long it takes to get to your tap? Uh, I've heard that question before. I, I think that's tricky to give That'd a specific answer for that. would be follow one drop that yeah. whole way. Um, the Verde system, probably much quicker because it's a lot less storage. 
And also we spill a lot on the Verde system during a wet winter, uh, it'll fill and spill and that water immediately makes it down through the salt river and then soaks into the aquifer beneath the valley. And once water hits, you know, when we get these flash floods that from the monsoons and they're pouring water into the river system and it passes Tempe town Lake, once it's going down the river there, is there any catchment or is that just all water down river at pasture district at that point? It's, it's basically not caught, and a lot of it is being soaked into the river channel, which is uh, good because it's physically there, recharging the aquifer, um, but it, you, it's not controlled in the way that, that you might be thinking of. Um, if it goes all the way to the Yuma, for instance, that might be a different story, but that would rarely happen during the monsoon season. And the story of Salt River Project is really interesting because y'all are over 100 years old. But you started by repurposing canals that had been built hundreds of years ago. Right. Yeah, for sure. We have a long history of, of managing this system. And uh, we've gotten through big droughts before. And this one being the worst uh, that we can basically conceive of. Uh, the fact that we're at the same storage that we were at the beginning of the drought, I think, is remarkable. And it shows our long history. That's Bo Savoma with Salt River Project in your official title as a meteorologist? That's correct. Salt River Project, that's everything managed in-state from our watershed. We also have Noli Templeton from Central Arizona Project Canal that's managing a watershed system a lot different than SRP. That's right. We are in charge of the Colorado River supply that comes into the state of Arizona. Now, unlike Salt River Project, you don't have anyone telling you what to do. Central Arizona Project Canal, you've got to share with Colorado, Nevada, California. You know, you've got certain restrictions on what you can take out of that water supply. Exactly. It's the law of the river, right? And so we have for the state of Arizona, there's a 2.8 million acre foot allocation. Um, and that's annual? Annual. Okay. Correct. Um, under no shortage conditions. Um but we do. We have to share with the other six basin states. Uh, there's the upper basin, which is New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah. And the lower basin is us, Nevada, and California. And then we also uh, need to make sure we deliver one and a half million acre feet to Mexico. So it's got a, that water has to make it all the way downriver. That's right. So we have international, federal, and state we all need to figure out a way to work together. And that 2.8 million acre feet of Colorado River water that Arizona gets, not all of that is managed by CAP. That's correct. Um, that includes our on-river users. So those are the different farms and communities that are along the Colorado River. Um, CAP historically has um, gotten about one and a half million acre feet, and that is uh, pumped through our aqueduct to deliver to central Arizona, primarily Maricopa, Pima, and Pinal counties. And that starts in Parker, Arizona, and it ends just south of Tucson. It's 336 miles of canal. Correct. That's exactly right. Um, we pump water almost 3,000 feet along that 336-mile canal distance. And then y'all actually have extended the, a reservoir to use as part of uh, the canal system, which actually serves as quite a key component that I think most people just think it's a weekend party place. Exactly. <laughs> we do. We um, strategically, we utilize as we can Lake Pleasant um, as a key part of our canal system, and um, it helps serve as a you know a buffer when the canal is um, needing you know when there's no water moving through the canal for maintenance or other reasons. Then we have Lake Pleasant as our storage reservoir along the system. 
And it goes back to a super cooling technique that we have with electricity. We talk about all the time with users. So y'all can pump water when electricity is cheap and store it in Lake Pleasant and then not have to pump when electricity is on peak. I believe that's so. That's something that our power team works very hard to figure out those optimal times to pump and where to save um, save the, yeah, exactly that, the cost of electricity here and there throughout the day. And the canal is not just a flat open canal. I mean, you've got siphons that go underground uh, as it passes natural river shed. You've got uh, pump, 14 pumping stations. You've got check flow gate valves all along the way just to manage this constant flow of water. Uh, and, and it's quite a technical operation. It's not just filling water in a canal and letting it go. Exactly that. And we have a very, um, you know, dedicated team to ensure that our canal is operating 24 seven. Um, and it's, yeah, it's quite, quite a piece of infrastructure that was put in place. Now you said it's 2.8 million acre feet of water that we get under no restrictions. Well, we're in tier one. Correct. So what does that mean? So 2022 was our first year of operating under tier one restrictions. And so that meant that we had a cut to our allocation of about 512,000 acre feet. Um, and that was primarily borne by CAP. CAP was the, is the first one to get that cut. And within our CAP system, that was primarily borne by the agricultural users. Now, there's rumors that we're probably going to move into Tier 2 starting 2023. That's correct. So with the release of an August 24-month study, that's what the Borough of Reclamation uses to um, define what shortage tier we will be operating in for 2023. And it was determined that we will be in a tier 2A shortage condition. And what that means for CAP is that we have an additional 80,000 acre foot cut. So we will be at a 592,000 acre foot reduction from our overall allocation for next year. Um, that means that we will have no agricultural water supply and that there will be modest cuts to our city and tribal water users as well. Now, the main water supply for both of these systems comes from snowpack but i mean we've got a pretty wet monsoon has that done anything to relieve the stress of the systems right so the colorado river basin is a snow melt dominated watershed so almost up to 80 percent of the colorado river flow comes from the upper basin snow melt so that's you know the snow melt in colorado wyoming utah um the monsoons are uh while they help um and this year's been a very good monsoon season it does not help us with our long-term drought shortage condition. Has Bo, has that helped CAP at all? Uh, well, I want to say two things. The salt, the salt and Verde watersheds are not snow dominated in the way that you think the Colorado River is. Winter rainfall is a huge generator of runoff. Winter snow melt with also early spring snow melt. So even in the winter, it's not snow dominated. And uh, much the same way, the monsoon season doesn't help fill up and spill the reservoirs but a wet monsoon season like we've had the last two years helps keep them level throughout the summer by decreasing demand in the phoenix area and by reducing evaporation on roosevelt lake and adding a little bit of inflow to the reservoirs so between srp and cap that accounts for almost three quarters of our water use i think underground water pumping is about 40 percent of the state's use uh, from the the maps i've seen but those river sheds are very important, and obviously the majority of our water supply. Thanks for spending a few minutes educating Arizona homeowners on how that water system uh, and delivery works to our, our Arizona lifestyle. 
All right, this segment, we're jumping right in to do-yourself water audits at your home, castle, or cabin. And to talk us through that, we've got Andrew Peroni, who is a water conservation specialist for the city of Goodyear, Arizona, in studio joining us this morning. Andrew, thanks for coming in. Where would people start with doing a whole home water audit? Good morning, Romy. Thank you very much for having me here today. Uh, the very first step is to actually locate and start at your water meter. Typically, your water meter is going to be uh, near the street. It can be uh, near a sidewalk, usually in the ground. Uh, most of the time, it's going to have either a metal lid or a composite lid. When you open it up, watch for critters. There's going to be a meter face, as we call it, on there, and it's just a round dial. Check to see if you have any constant water use. You want to see there's typically a little bit of a dial of some sort that will be turning, so if you've turned everything off in your home, go out to your water meter and see if any uh, water is moving through it by checking to see if the dial is turning. It's going to be your first step in terms of assessing if you have a potential leak. Try as best you can to measure how much water that is. And we're going to discuss why that's important because it's going to help us determine what kind of leak you might have. Then the next step would be to start isolating where that water is going. Now, based on how fast that dial is spinning, will tell us a little bit about what kind of possible leak you might have. When we go out there and we see water moving, we start at the pool. So if you have a pool, turn off the main valve to your automatic leveler because that's the only way the pool is getting new water besides filling it with a hose. You might have a constant flow going there all the time, and that's normal. It should be pretty low, 0.05 gallons per minute, between 6 and 10 gallons per hour. If you have a higher flow rate than that, then that could tell you there's potentially something wrong. So the most common leak we see on a pool with relation to a high water bill would be uh, an automatic fill valve that is malfunctioning. And those things malfunction um, pretty commonly here because uh, we have fairly hard water, so that calcification kind of gets into that, that little valve opening and can force that to stay open when it should actually be closing. Now the next step is go back to your water meter. If the dial is still turning, the next thing that I'd recommend is turning off your main irrigation valve. So most people on the side of their homes are going to have uh, a pipe that comes up out of the ground and goes into their house, and there'll be typically two shutoff valves. One of them will be your main that goes to the inside, and then you'll have another line that tees off of it and goes back into the ground, and that's going to be for your irrigation line. Uh, turn that valve off. That's going to turn off the, all of your irrigation hydraulically. Now, before you do that, one thing you want to check is just make sure your irrigation timer is set to off. And if you still see water running, then turn off that main line to the irrigation. And even if something's not scheduled, it may come on in five minutes. Just turn it on because you don't want that valve coming on without water flow going through it. It's designed to have that water, not to be turned on and, and basically running dry. Yes, you're exactly right. To prevent damage to your, your solenoid and things like that inside the valve. Um, and when we talk about valve, if you're not familiar, it's the, the valves are the ones that are in those brown or green boxes that you have in the dirt or in, in the rock or in the grass. Um, when you open that up, you'll see sometimes one or sometimes several of those valves. Now, we'll go into a little detail with this because this is actually the most common constant leak that we find. And it's a little tricky to find because, again, it's not going to really show up as a big, huge mess anywhere. But let's say you go back to your water meter at this point and you say, oh, now it's stopped. Well, the most common leak that happens are these valves. They'll get stuck open slightly. Similar to what we described with the autofill, you can have a little bit of debris in there, or you can have there's a rubber or silicone diaphragm that can get uh, worn out, and then the valve doesn't close completely. So what that means is you could have a very slow but constant water going through the valve out to the plants, but you won't really see it making uh, any noticeable issue because the, the soil will just soak it right up. The third one that's another common one would be your indoor. 
So go ahead and turn off that main one that goes inside to your house. Go back to your water meter again and see if there's still water flowing. So if you get to that step and you said, oh, well, it finally turned off now that I've turned off the main, that tells you there was some kind of constant leak that's happening on the inside. Most of the time, it's going to be the toilets, a flapper that's not sealing all the way, or it could be that your, your um, level inside the tank is just a little bit high and there's a little bit of water constantly flowing down the drain. The second thing I would check for if you have it would be water treatment systems. So if you have a reverse osmosis system or a water softener, those are a little less common to leak constantly. Let's say you've isolated, you've turned off every valve that you know of and the water meter is still moving. The only pipe left now on your property is going to be the pipe between the meter and the house. And we call that typically the service line. That means is you might have a slow but constant leak that's seeping out just somewhere in the front of your property or wherever that water meter is in relation to your property. Um, but and I, when you talk about that type pipe type material, um, Orangeburg is one that we're seeing come up a lot. They had thought this is going to be a 40 to 50 year pipe and it hasn't quite lasted that long. And if I go through all of these pro or steps to identify a leak and I still can't find one, you know, what, what is a water conservation specialist for the city of Goodyear? Can I, if I lived in Goodyear, could I call you? Absolutely. So depending on your water provider, uh, a lot of water providers offer a free service um, called a home water check or a home water audit that they'll do uh, for you if you are a customer of that water agency. So every city or water agency is a little different. If you have a private water company as well, just check with them and ask them if they offer that service. And oftentimes what they can do is actually meet you at your home. Uh, they can walk through these steps with you. Um, sometimes, uh, for instance, in Goodyear, we can pull some hourly data from the past from the water meter so we can see, okay, what happened in the last um, two to three months? And maybe we can figure out something that happened there as well. So, yeah, if you've exhausted all your tools at your disposal, definitely reach out to your conservation office. Um, and they can, number one, let you know if the water use you have is appropriate for the size of your property. And then number two, if it doesn't appear correct or it appears higher than that you'd expect, then, um, yeah, they can help you figure out potentially what could be going wrong. Um, and it can be really tricky because sometimes it could be hidden issues or a combination of issues, right? So that could be tricky as well. Andrew Peroni, City of Goodyear Water Conservation Specialist on basically a, a very in-depth how to do your own water audit. Thank you very much, Romy. It's a pleasure being here. to Sanderson Ford for sales, service, and satisfaction. Go ahead and follow the road to Sanderson Ford for award-winning service and customer satisfaction. Come in and check out America's best lineup, like the new 2022 award-winning electric Mustang Mach-E. Oh, yeah. Blaze new trails in a new Bronco or Bronco Sport. These are America's best-selling trucks for 45 years in a row. Sanderson Ford has trucks with new inventory arriving daily. Choose Sanderson Ford. They treat customers the right way with no hassle, no pressure, no nonsense, and no added markups. All roads lead to Sanderson Ford for sales, service, and satisfaction. One of the most award-winning Ford dealers in all of America. Sanderson Ford, right here in Glendale, 51st Avenue and Maryland. And next weekend, uh, no, I'm sorry, two weekends from now, 
We'll be live at the Saba Home Show at the Tucson Convention Center. We'd invite y'all all to come. We will be doing stage presentations on Friday and Saturday afternoon about the 10 things Arizona homeowners most often do wrong. Now, we'll be on the floor with our Rosie on the House booth visiting with all the Arizona uh, Pima, Santa Cruz, Cochise County residents. They That, that Tucson, that Saba Home Show brings them in from all over southern Arizona. Y'all come on down to the Tucson Convention Center, free parking. Rosie and, I, and Romy and I will be there. Sweet Jennifer will be there in a booth to visit with you, give you free answers to any questions you might have about your house, home, castle, or cabin. And then Romy and I will be doing stage presentations Friday and Saturday afternoon on the 10 things Arizona homeowners do wrong most often. So come on by and introduce yourself. I love those live events where people can come up and say, I've been listening to you for 47 years, every single Sunday night. (laughs) Saturday morning. Okay. Saturday morning. (laughs) Let me introduce you to this guy, Wyatt Earp. He's been listening to you just as long. Yeah, right, right, right. right. We may run into him down there. And if you want tickets, uh, we do have a certain amount. So email us at info at rosieonthehouse.com. Free tickets. And we'll send you uh, up to four per request. So... For you and another couple, or you can come two days. That's right. Some people do. A lot of, a lot of people do. It's a lot to see, and the floor's sold out, so it's going to be a, a full house. Very good. So we're looking forward to seeing you all. That's two weekends from now, September 30th, and then October 1st and 2nd, Tucson Convention Center. Continuing our water conservation topic this hour, we've got Joanne Toms, Environmental Program Manager from the City of Glendale. Welcome back to the program. Last time it was a call-in. Uh, we got you in studio this time. We sure did. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you, Romy and Rosie. Thank you. And we've got talking points to cover about uh, planting for water conservation. But before that, you actually had quite a bit of history on the whole Water Use It Wisely campaign and uh, uh, AMWA and just just for, for the fun. Let, let's go through a little bit of that history. I, it's very fascinating, and I don't think a lot of people know it. Absolutely. I love water history. So in Arizona, it really all started because of the 1980 Groundwater Management Act, and that you know protected our groundwater. And it also required water providers, whether it was a city or a private water provider, to have conservation programs. So that's actually why I'm here today. And then also the Water Use It Wisely campaign, that came around in 1999. Um, there were several partners at the time, the city of Mesa, and then the city of Glendale also joined on in 19. 19- So we've been promoting Water Use It Wisely now for decades, and I think that's just really exciting, and it really just goes to show that Arizona has been a water leader um, in in the United States. It's funny. We've been running a survey all month long. It actually started back in August, so it's been more than a month, and we've kept it on through this Saturday's broadcast, and it's promoting our listeners to provide feedback if you were in charge of this new Uh, water infrastructure budget, uh, Arizona SB 1740, where would you allocate the billion dollars for water resources? And it's, it's absolutely amazing how many people say stuff that I'm like, well, water, use it wisely, has already been doing that for 20 years. Well, no, we've been doing that for decades. No, that that was added 10 years ago. I mean, so many of the solutions we are doing, it's just, 
you're not paying attention. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and in Glendale, our conservation program started in 1985. And so in those, you know, almost 40 years, we have a really robust landscape rebate program, and we've had over 5,600 customers convert unwanted grass to Xeriscape totaling over 118 acres, again, of unwanted grass to a water-wise landscape. And so a lot of the other cities um, also have various rebates to help our customers improve water efficiency. That's almost one-sixth of a square mile. Oh, my gosh. That's that's very impressive. Congratulations. I mean, when you are doing that in residential properties, I mean, that that's a lot of properties that have converted. Absolutely. And we also have a lot of commercial customers and HOAs that have just taken out some of those non-functional grass areas. And I have to admit, those are my biggest pet peeves. And maybe it's because <laughs> back in um, college, I worked for a municipality in the summertime. And so I had to take the push mower off of the truck. I had to weed whip the area. And it was always the areas of turf that were like maybe, I don't know, 30 feet long by five feet wide. And to top it off, Romy, I had to wear a sign on the back that said, stay clear, like 30 feet, because I was weed whipping. And, you know, there's always debris and rocks. So I think I take it as a personal affront now when I see these really weird, non-functional turf areas. So again, you know, water conservation, we're not against grass. You know, grass is part of Xeriscape. But really what we're trying to get rid of is are those non-functional turf areas. So those really little areas that are just a pain for the landscape uh, contractors to have to maintain. And also you can't water those areas really efficiently. Um, I don't recommend that you have an area of turf that's less than say six feet wide because you just can't get it watered. Right. That's true. Without wasting a lot. That's yeah, right. It's going to go on the overspray and everywhere else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when you drove down this road this morning where there's this row of palm trees and that grass patch, that's about three feet wide. Re- did you just like, run your tire up on it and burn out <laughs> across it. Let me just take that out for you while I'm coming through here. Oh, no, I'm passive aggressive. I just gave it the good old stink eye. <laughs> well, you know, one of the ways that water conservation hit me was in our outdoor living hours, speaking with gardeners, master gardeners from all over the state of Arizona. One of them have the conviction that why do you plant it, water it, fertilize it, cultivate it, trim it, Spend all this time if you can't eat it. So, oh, I agree. So, so I mean, I, that was a major light bulb for me. Okay, nothing on my property is is going to get that kind of care, affection, money, resources, and time spent on it unless it produces something for me to eat. Absolutely. You know, grass has tricked us to grow it all over the world. And in Glendale, we had a program a couple years ago called Eat Your Yard, where we introduced families to all of the different desert edibles. So like mesquite and, you know, prickly pear and all sorts of wonderful desert plants that are edible that you can actually benefit from with putting all of that money and water and time and patience into growing your landscape. Why not grow, a, you know, a desert edible landscape? Amen. Why not? And when you are cutting back on pulling those lawns out, you know, we talk about this fairly regularly in the outdoor living hour. You're killing off that Bermuda is pretty key to making sure your Xeriscape doesn't get torn up, grown over. Uh, you know, that, that can be a very frustrating thing to put in a nice Xeriscape and then have a year later, two years later, three years later, all this Bermuda just coming up everywhere. 
Absolutely. That's such a good point because Bermuda grass, you know, it's a warm season grass. It goes dormant. So it goes dormant when it's not watered. And it also goes dormant when the soil temperatures get to be about 55 degrees. So in the wintertime. And you're so right that if you've gone through all of the energy and effort to get rid of that grass, and then convert it to a desert landscape, you still may have some areas of problematic Bermuda grass that grows through. But really, we recommend best practices on how to kill that Bermuda grass. And so there's really good information on the waterusitwisely.com webpage. And again, that's just waterusitwisely.com that goes through the different techniques to kill that Bermuda grass. Um, There's chemical means that you can do. And then also the University of Arizona Cooperative Extension has really good information about um, other you know techniques so one of which would be called solarization and that's kind of like when you bake the grass and you have to do that with like a plastic and then um, you just kind of bake it in the summertime so again there's really really good information online on and different ways to eradicate that Bermuda grass but that is key is making sure that that's plant material is gone before you do your desert landscape because grass is an opportunist. You know, that Bermuda grass will wake back up when it gets some water. And is there anywhere that you like to send homeowners to look at good zeroscape gardens just to get an idea of what's available? Well, Absolutely. My favorite Xeriscape demonstration garden is at the Glendale Public Library. It's the Glendale Xeriscape demonstration garden, and that's spread out over around the whole library. Um, I actually work out of the Glendale Public Library, and so I'm wearing a shirt today that says, if you have a garden and a library, um, you know, you have everything you need. So I'm loosely quoting that from Cicero, <laughs> um, but it's it's true. You know, what a great place to work. But what's nice... And so of- where is that? I can picture the town hall building, couple stories backs up against Grand, about 95th Avenue. Right. So the Glendale Xeriscape Garden, if you know where Glendale Community College is, it's just north of the college. Or 59th Avenue and Brown or 59th Avenue and Peoria are our cross streets. Yeah, so you're farther in than than the downtown old historic Glendale. Correct. Okay. And what's great about the Xeriscape Garden is that you can see plants in mature size. So it's so misleading when you go to a nursery and you see those tiny little plants and then you put it in your landscape and it doesn't fit, right? Um, And so that's nice about the Xeriscape Garden. You can see different design techniques that we have. You can see combinations of plants that work well together. And if you go to the waterusitwisely.com webpage, we have a link to all of the different Xeriscape demonstration gardens around the valley. And so, you know, there's uh, gardens in the East Valley, like Mesa and Tempe and Chandler, and then also in the West Valley. Um, So Glendale, like I mentioned, Peoria, and then the City of Surprise, I believe just put in a new Xeriscape garden. So who doesn't want to go to a garden and spend some time, right? (laughs) You know, I got to tour the ASU's technical campus that used to be um, an airfield way out in the East Valley. They did a really nice job out there too. I know exactly what you're talking about. I think it's called the Polytechnic Campus. Yes, thank you. And it's so beautiful out there because it's very much blended in with the desert. And I love, love, love their botanical signs. So you can see the name of a plant, you know, its common name, and then you can also see its botanical name. Um, But yeah, cool. And aside from the plants, they've got a great number of landscape architectural features and designs that have put into hardscapes. 
Oh, they totally do. And I love a lot of the passive rainwater harvesting that they have there. So, you know, passive rainwater harvesting is a way to capture water into the landscape. Um, you don't necessarily have to t have tanks or cisterns. Um, that would be like a combination of, uh, you know, swales and basins. So the whole point of passive rainwater harvesting is to collect that water, you know, slow it down, spread it, and then soak it into the ground. And so sometimes you may be walking in a landscape and not even know that it's, you know, passively harvesting that rainwater. And the point of mentioning that so many people think desert landscape, you know, they're, in their mind, it's what they saw in the airplane flying in or driving over from California when you're out in that stretch of I-10 between Needles or, or that's actually on 40, but like, uh, coming over from Blythe, or if you're coming over from you on 8, there's long stretches that just not a lot to be desired out there. But <laughs> you go to these zero-scape gardens and see, you know, how beautiful a desert native landscape can be. And maybe not all of them are native, but they're from desert-adapted climates from around the world, just how many different succulents and trees and color and how beautiful it can be without being a, a water hog. I agree with you. I think, you know, there's a spectrum of xeriscape gardens, right? You know, some people really just want that very minimalist landscape. Um, I'm maybe on the other end of the spectrum where I like a very natural looking landscape. So we have, you know, beautiful uh, desert adapted trees in my front yard and we have understory shrubs and we have a lot of wildflowers. And I love creating, you know, a Sonoran Desert habitat uh, in our Phoenix metro area. You know, I live just up the street. I live on the north side of Piestawa Peak. And, you know, it's a pretty urban area. And I think Xeriscape can be really, really beautiful. But I do appreciate that some people really just want kind of that minimalist landscape. But don't be limited with a Xeriscape. It can be attractive and colorful and habitat uh, friendly and wildlife friendly. Joined in studio with Joanne Toms, Environmental Program Manager for City of Glendale. And I just had it in my mind, City of Glendale, you must work down by the City Hall uh, on Glendale and Grand. But you're over by the community college, the library's north of there. And I have not been to that uh, Xeriscape Garden that I can recall. So I'm going to have to put that on my driving route this week. Oh, definitely. You have to come out and spend a couple of hours. And then next to the Xeriscape Garden is Historic Saguaro Ranch Park. And that is a beautiful piece of property. Um, and that property was made available in the late 1800s because of the Arizona Canal. So water is why we're all out here. And you had made a point at the beginning, not a point, but we were talking about the history of Water Use It Wisely. You know, it was put together by the Arizona Municipal Water Users Association. Start out with City of Mesa. Glendale jumped on board. Throughout the history, it's been municipalities in the Phoenix metro area until now. Right. So our partner base is very diverse. So we have, like you said, a lot of the uh, Phoenix metro cities. Uh, we have CAP, Central Arizona Project, SRP, Salt River Project, and then a bunch of private water providers. And so, and I apologize and to the partners if I'm missing any of you. Well, and Tucson is now jumped on board. Oh, that's right. That's right. See, I knew it. Thank you for covering for me. <laughs> so, and they're one of the biggest water users. And as far as I remember, if I remember correctly, that's the single biggest cap client 
CAP, they have more water delivery to Tucson than any other one water user district. You might be right. I am not 100% sure on that. But, you know, fortunately, a lot of us, you know, cities have that a diverse water supply where we have Central Arizona Project Water, where we have Salt River Project Water, at least in the Phoenix metro area, and then groundwater and then effluent. So uh, we're very, very fortunate. We're standing on the shoulders of prior water resource managers that made sure that we had these, you know, diverse water supplies available. And the final takeaways for homeowners. I know you've, uh, it's really great for planting season. I mean, right now is the time to be planting. And you know, now's the time to mm-hmm. save water because, I mean, well, you could say 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago <laughs> was the time to save water, but we can't get that time back. So the next best time is right now. Right. And you know what? Residents and commercial customers and municipal customers, we have all done such a good job of conserving water. So in Glendale, over the past 20 years, our population increased by 6%, yet our water demand went down by 10%. So we know people are ready. Yeah, let's round of applause. Um, We know that our customers have done a really good job of conserving. So yes, so with fall planting, um, I'm getting itchy because I'm a gardener and I love being outside. And I just have some best practices for folks. You know, definitely check out the waterplantitwisely.com uh, webpage. That's the microsite. So um, if, even if you type in wateruseitwisely.com, um, you'll find your way to the waterplantitwisely.com microsite. So again, you know, I've heard you talk about this, Romy and uh, Rosie, a lot. You know, the right plant in the right location you know, right time. So you want to make sure that you're planting in the fall or the spring. Don't be planting anything in the summer and then in the right way. And so I do have to talk about safety. Um, that's in my DNA. My late father was a, a loss prevention manager. And so make sure that you're wearing your personal protective equipment. You know, make sure you're calling Arizona 811 before you're digging so that you're not, you know, digging up a utility line. Uh, you don't need that kind of stress in your life. So yeah, make sure that you're doing things correctly. And then when you go to the nursery... Now, now, for the mm-hmm. 811, if you're digging uh, over how many inches deep? I mean, if somebody's putting in a little, uh, you know, raised uh, bell guard stacking wall, you're and you're going down four or five inches, you're fine. I mean, it's when you're trenching and digging for sprinkler lines that you got to Right, worry. exactly. So, yeah, if you're just, you know, doing something just surficially, you know, you probably don't have to call Arizona 811. It is free, but if you're going to be putting in, like, a 24-inch box, you know, a 36-inch box tree, if you're really going down several feet into the ground, you want to make sure that you're doing that safely. So thanks for reminding me on that. Wiseley.com and now plant... Uh, waterplantitwisely.com. And that sound reminds us we have one final set of Diamondback tickets to give away. This is for next Friday as we host the San Francisco Giants. Text to 411-923. And what movie, what character said, you are killing me smalls? Joanne Toms from City of Glendale. Thanks for spending this half hour with us. If you've got questions between now and next week, rosie on thehouse.com.